0: James, thank you for sharing with us. And um, we have been in uh, in Nehemiah, and while we've been in Nehemiah, um, we uh, have have heard Nehemiah talk about some of the prophets. And uh, this morning, I thought I would start by reading uh, some of the prophets, just to tune our our heart to God's word and and Uh, to what it was that the the people had heard and had rejected. Nehemiah, uh, or I mean, Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah, earlier in his letter, his prophecy uh, in Isaiah 1, says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land and if you refuse and rebel you will be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the lord has spoken our father we read these words and um, it's easy to assign them to israelites who lived thousands of years ago it's easy to say that that this is for them that that your your promise of goodness your promise of of punishment, your, your call to holiness, your call to faithfulness, your um, call to contrite spirits and, and humble hearts is something that was for your people a long time ago. But Lord, we know that all of Abraham's blessings are ours in Christ Jesus, and we know that as we read this, we have to see ourselves as the ones you are calling as the ones you are asking to to humble our hearts, to confess our sins. And Lord, we're going to be reading a long passage this morning, a passage about how great you are and how it is that your people consistently turn away from you and you consistently chase after them and you consistently pursue them and you consistently love them. Lord, I pray that as we read these words that we will see Ourselves in them, that we will see the ways that you have chased us and we have failed, that we will see how great and mighty and awesome and powerful you are, and yet how we act like you don't exist and we ignore you and we just say, Oh, yeah, I'm already purchased. I'm already in the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we will repent. I pray that we will turn to you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we will will come back to the thing that you have called us to from the beginning. Lord, I pray that your word, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, will pierce our hearts, that your word will, will last and endure in our minds. Your word endures forever. Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word, by the word of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you will increase our faith, that you will grow in our body as as people who are in love with you because we know you through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 is where we're going to be um, this morning. Um, As uh, as I was uh, thinking about... Um, Nehemiah and I was thinking about um, this passage Um, I was reminded of uh, my years growing up Um, I don't know about you but uh, maybe I I will remind you of some of your children Um, but I was a whole lot better at starting things than I was at finishing them. Uh, maybe you've got kids like that, that they, they start a project and then they get distracted and they disappear. And, and, and you go, how did this happen? That This stuff is all over the place. Um, uh, I had projects that were half finished in the basement or in the garage um, and and something would distract me and I'd take off and, and uh, leave that thing half finished, and it would languish there for a long period of time. Uh, I remember coming home from college one weekend, and on a whim, deciding, I'm going to paint my bedroom. And uh, I started painting my bedroom, and then the weekend was gone, and it was time to go back to school, and the room was half painted, and the door was hanging off, and, and it was like, all right, I'll get this when I come back. And of course, my dad finished that project. Um, uh, I delivered newspapers when I was a kid and, um, uh, I was constantly working on my bike cause we bought cheap huffies and I had big baskets on the back and it, something was always breaking. And so I would get in there and I'd fix my bike and then I'd have to be delivering newspapers. So I would take off at, out of the garage and all the tools would still be laying there on the floor. Um, I think I'm not alone in this. I have definitely gotten better at this, but I think I'm not alone at this. I I think you are like me if you have ever registered for a race that you didn't run or you bought exercise machinery and now it collects clothes um, or you bought a book and you never bothered to read it or you started a home project or a car project. um, And it's still working on there. Uh, Like uh, I say I've gotten better, but I do have two patches on walls where kids have put holes in the walls and I still have to paint over it. The patch is done, but the paint isn't finished. Why are we like that? We are like that because it is easier to start something than it is to finish. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a business. Or if it's a diet, or if it's a career, or if it's a dissertation, or if it's a home improvement project, or, you know, fixing your kids headphone jack, whatever the thing is, it's a lot easier to start than it is to finish. And we can become motivated by any number of things to start a project, right? Or to start a new thing. We see an ad in a magazine, or we walk past a mirror and we go, holy cow, I'm going to start a diet. I need to lose 10 pounds. Um, we, we have a conversation, or we hear somebody give a really inspirational speech. Um, we read a book, or we see an infomercial, right? Whatever the thing is, there's, there's tons of things that can motivate us. But we know that it's harder to finish than it is uh, to, uh, to just start that thing, because the, the thing that motivates us to start doesn't have the horsepower to get us all the way through to the end. It doesn't have the ability to, to get us to the point where we finish something. And so the same is true in our spiritual lives. We, um, at the beginning of the year, I'm going to start reading the Bible through, right? And you go, all right, well, it's, we're coming into October. How are we doing? Right. Um, I'm going to start sharing my faith. I'm, I'm going to start working on my relationships. I am going to reprioritize my life. And, and, and that, that thing that we initially decide Something happens that's real, right? Um, uh, I remember I, I worked at camp 10 summers. And, um, and the thing that would be the trigger for kids to say, I'm going to change, was that they would have an encounter with God. And I really believe that they were having a true encounter with God. They would go to a campfire, they'd throw a stick in the fire, they'd go afterwards, they'd call their mom, they were crying, like things are going to be different. And, and year after year, kids would say to me, Tim, when I get home, everything's going to be different. But after 10 years, I I became a little skeptical because I I don't want to minimize their encounter with God. I, I do believe it was real, but that isolated encounter didn't seem to have enough sticking power to get them through the school year. And, and as adults, we do the same thing. <laughs> the, the only difference is we do it privately, right? We, we, we don't put ourselves out there because we know that there's a good chance that we're going to renege on whatever the thing is that we say that we're going to do. And so um, we know that that those moments of intense encounter with God often lack the horsepower to, uh, to see something through to completion. We've been in Nehemiah. And um, in in Nehemiah, um, we we went, have been working through. Nehemiah is about people and walls, right? About rebuilding the people, rebuilding the walls. Last week we were in chapter seven and eight, and we were talking about um, what it was that the the people had done after rebuilding the walls in just fifty two days. The people were overwhelmed by the the magnitude of what it was that God had accomplished, and they gathered together to commit themselves to God and to His Word, and and. Really, what they were doing is they were orienting themselves to God's glory. They established leaders, and they examined lineage, and they exposited the law, all to orient their city and and their worship and their lives around the glory of God. We come to Nehemiah chapter 9. And it is uh, a little bit over three weeks after this time that they have spent when, when they have been worshiping. And, and, and as they've been worshiping, they begin to cry out and they begin to weep tears because they understand that they are sinful and that God is holy. And the priests say them. No, this is not a time for mourning. This is a time for joy. This is the Feast of Trumpets. And so, so go today and put your weeping aside and, and rejoice and rejoice in the goodness of God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And they, and they send them off not to mourn and weep, but to celebrate. And so when we come to, to Nehemiah chapter nine, three weeks have gone by. It's the 24th day of the same month. Now remember, they had gotten together on the first month, the first day of the seventh month um, to begin the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. It, Nehemiah doesn't record this, but 10 days later, they they would have had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is coming up this week. Um, it's gonna be Monday the 28th. Um, uh, but it is, Yom Kippur was was the day when they made atonement for sins. And so the the people would have gathered in the temple, and, and they would have all brought sacrifices, and they would have all come into the temple ready to say, we have sinned and we des- don't deserve your mercy, um, but we are asking for your mercy. And we are making sacrifices because the scripture says that without the shedding of blood, There is no remission of sins. And so they would bring their sacrifices to point forward to one day, the ultimate sacrifice, whose blood would cover all sins for all times, would would be the final sacrifice. But they were coming in with these offerings. And then the the priests would bring two goats. And they would lay their hands on one, and, and they would confess their sin. And they would say, these are the things that we have done. And they would lay their hands on the other and they would confess all the guilt and all the shame that went with their actions and all the guilt and all the shame was placed on one goat. And then it was taken outside the city and it was taken so far out that it could never find its way back. The other one is as they laid their hands and they said, we deserve judgment. They they laid their hands on that goat and then they slit its throat and its blood was spilled out. And it was the blood covered the fact that they deserved judgment and, and this Offering was made and God withheld his judgment in in giving us a view of what would happen ultimately when Jesus would be the final sacrifice whose blood was spilled out so that it would cover and atone for and completely purify us of all sin. And so there was two things being taken care of. There was the actions that had been made and there was the guilt and shame that came with those. And the people saw two very visual things that happened to, to cover their actions and to take care of their guilt and their shame. And so the 10th day had come and gone. And then the 22nd day, which is two days before the Feast of Tabernacles ended, and there was to be a day in between. And then the 24th day was to be a day of fasting. It was to be a day that they came together to make a solemn recommitment to God's covenant and laws. And so it says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their head. What is that about? They, they are fasting, and they, and they are aligning their heart with God, and they're wearing sackcloth because they are in mourning. They understand that they have not been walking in God's ways, and they're putting dust on their heads, and, and they're saying, I, I should be destroyed. I should be decimated. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their place, and they confessed the sin, and the sins of their ancestors. So they're standing in their place. They stand there confessing, and it says they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For three hours, they stood listening to the book of the law, and then they spent another quarter, another three hours in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God, what, what are they doing? They, they are, are confessing and they are giving glory to God that he deserved to start with. And so for three hours, they listen to the law. And then for three hours, they say, here's all the ways we have failed to keep God's law. And, and so they are, are spending six hours before they ever get to the point where they're going to say, now it's time to praise the Lord. It's a standing on the stairs. The Levites were Jeshua and Bani and Kadmiel and Shebaniah and Bunai and uh, Sherebiah and Bani and Kenani, and they cried out with loud voices to the Lord our God. And the Levites, Jeshua and Kadmiel and Bani and Hashbina and Sherebiah and Hodiah and Shebaniah and uh, Pethahiah, said, Now stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. They have been worshiping for six hours. They have been in their place. They have been confessing their sins. They have been saying, God, you deserve more than what we've given you. And and now it's time for them to stand up and to praise the Lord their God. And and what I love about this passage is that often when we come to the the Old Testament, we have a hard time seeing gospel patterns in the Old Testament because we look at it and we go, oh, that was law, and now we're under grace and God operates in a different way and we don't see the gospel pattern but in this we see that the joy of trumpets came before the sorrow and repentance that came with the atonement the the atonement was completed before this call to obedience that we're going to see in chapter 10 and in this passage just like in Paul's letters the indicative comes before the imperative that is who God is and who we are in him comes before the imperative of this is what you should do. All of these things are our gospel gospel patterns that we should learn to recognize, that we should begin to see that this is the way that God moves. God always gives us the indicative, who he is, who we are, our identity in him, uh, before he gives us an imperative, this is what you should do. And so here's a group of people, and they're remembering who God is, and they're remembering who he has called them to be, and what he has made them, and then they're going to commit to, to say, all right, and now we're going to do the things that are in line with the character and nature of who it is that you have made us, and so they they begin to to give that indicative. Who is God? Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and all praise. You alone are the Lord. Okay, you alone are the Lord. You Lord. You, Yahweh, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Unfortunately, the translation I copied out of here doesn't have it that way. But you are Yahweh you alone. Why Why would it, it kind of use those words? And and, and what we're going to see is all throughout this, you're going to see a reflection back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is, is when uh, God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. And, and in this, this is how he begins. Exodus 20 is you will have no other. You, uh, I am God alone. Matthew 4 rephrases that and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone will you serve and so he is is they they're framing this up Saying, kind of pointing people back to the law, and they they go on to say, "You made heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitude of heavens worship you." And again, it's referring back to Exodus chapter 20, because in Exodus chapter 20 it says that in six days the Lord made heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and that He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath, and he has made it holy. And so they are, again, they're referring to the law. You are God alone. You have created everything. And, and so we are, are to worship you and we are to keep your ways. And so they go on and they say, um, uh, you are Yahweh. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And you found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites, and you have kept your promise because you are righteous. Now, hold on to this idea that they're talking about Abram and Abraham and the way that God made a covenant with Abram, uh, with, with Abraham um, uh, during this time, because we're going to come back to that. But but they, they say, look, you are Yahweh. You are are the one who's the lawgiver. You're the creator. You are the covenant giver. You're the promise keeper. And they go on to say, and you're the rescuer. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of the land, for you knew how arrogantly or how presumptuously the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take and you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven and you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good and you made known to them your holy sabbath and you gave them commands and decrees and laws through your your servant Moses in their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock and you told them to go and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them but they like our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands so so here he said look you are yahweh you alone you are creator you are the covenant giver the promise keeper the rescuer the miracle worker you are god present with us in a pillar you are the law giver you are the sabbath and rest giver you are the provider and then he says but we have scorned who you are we have acted presumptuously we this says they our ancestors became arrogant they became presumptuous you know what is what does that mean exodus chapter 20 verse 7 says you will not bear the name of the lord your god in vain now in my household we Very, very early. uh, If uh, one of our kids came home from school in kindergarten, and he had heard one of his friends exclaim, OMG. And, and we said, Hey, let's talk about what that means. And let's talk about why we don't say that we don't use the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. We don't don't just throw it out there. And so we're we're going to purge this from our vocabulary, and and this is part of of what we taught them. But there's more to uh, this idea of not bearing the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. It's not just an exclamation, which we shouldn't make, but it is bearing the name of the Lord, your God, and then living like you're not a name-bearer. And so when he says they became arrogant, they became presumptuous, the the idea is is they kind of said, you know what, I'm one of God's people. And and because I'm one of the chosen one, I I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. And you're going to go on and you're going to find out later in this passage that, that with God's presence among them, with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they said, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to make a golden calf, and I'm going to give it credit for pulling us out of Egypt. And, and I'm, that, is, that is bearing the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because you are saying, I'm a name bearer, but you are not living as a name bearer. And so they were arrogant, and they were stiff-necked. Think about this expression, stiff-necked. It, it only happens a few times in the Bible. The, the, probably the most um, uh, obvious one is the one that's the most quoted is this from Proverbs 29. He who is often reproved and stiffens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. But that, But that does not stand on its own. People had in their mind, as, as they would hear this proverb, they would say, oh, we know exactly what that looks like. They, in their mind, it triggered a mental picture. It took them back to the Pharaoh, and it took them back to the, Egypt, to the Egyptians. And, and here were people who God sent a plague, and they cried out and said, please save us. And then God took away the plague, and they stiffened their neck. And God sent another plague, and they cried out. And God Relented, and they stiffen their neck, and he who is often reproved and stiffens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and the Egyptians were destroyed, and that without remedy right so so Proverbs is pointing backwards, and this idea of of being arrogant, of being presumptuous of being stiff necked what they are really saying is, we are just like the Egyptians we our sin is as bad as theirs. When you get to a point where you are able to say, my sin is just as bad as my worst enemies, then you have finally begun to have the contrite heart and the humbleness of heart to actually see yourself for who you are. Because when you get to the point where you go, my worst enemies who I despise everything they do, I'm as bad as them then you are beginning to understand the depth of the depravity of your heart and your separation from God. And so here they are. Our ancestors became ar- arrogant. They became presumptuous. They became stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, and they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Can you imagine? To return their slavery and yet we do it all the time we know that our sin is slavery we know that it is bondage and we return to it over and over and we are just like them but you are a forgiving god a gracious compassionate slow to anger abounding in loyal love therefore you did not desert them even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, even though they had made an idol right in the middle of camp, nor the pillar of fire by the night to shine on the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet didn't become swollen. He says, look, we, we've acted presumptuously. We've been stiff-necked. We've been disobedient. We forgot your works. We wanted to return to slavery. And yet you forgave us. But even in your forgiveness, we blasphemed your forgiveness. You forgave by being gracious and merciful and and abounding in loyal love. And we made this calf, and the pillar still went before us, and the Spirit was still with us, and your hand still provided for us, and your sustaining power continued to clothe us. You gave then people to rule. You gave kingdoms and nations, allotting them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. And you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them in the land that you told your parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land, and you subdued them before them, the Canaanites who lived in the land. And you gave the Canaanites under their hand, along with the kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. And they captured fortified cities and fertile land, and they took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance, and they ate of the full and were nourished, and they reveled in your great goodness." man, you, you kept your promise in Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, you said, look, I'm going to give you a people to rule. I'm going to give you a land to possess. I'm going to give you children that multiply. I'm going to give you victory in battle. I'm going to give you cities that you didn't build. I'm going to give you houses that were already furnished. I'm going to give you wells you didn't dig. I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant. And, and he's saying, you did all this. Joshua, in Joshua 24, recounts, like, hey, God, in Deuteronomy 6, you promised all these things, and then you actually did all these things. And so they are being reminded that Deuteronomy 6 promised it. Joshua 24, it was a reality, and they have experienced this, and they were fat and happy and satisfied with all of God's good things. But even then, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you, and they turned their backs on your law and they killed your prophets who had warned them. In order to turn their back to you, they committed awful blasphemies, and you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight, and they abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they uh, were ruled over. And when they cried out, to you again. You heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. They're disobedient and rebelled. They, they cast their law behind you. They killed the prophets. They've committed great blasphemies, and yet God says, I'm going to send a rescuer. But even the rescuers, they reject. They, they, they say after arrest, they, they did evil again. And and after being warned, they acted presumptuously again. They continued to disobey. And so then they come to the end and and, and they say, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant, they became presumptuous. Um, They disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you and became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them, By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then he comes and says, look, this is what you deserve, and this is what we deserve. This is the summary. In summary, you deserve worship. Now, therefore, our God. That is deeply personal. You have chosen us, and we are your possession, whether we have lived like it or not. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, that is, the powerful God, in control of everything and overwhelmingly holy, who keeps his covenant of love Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings and our leaders and our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statues that you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. But see, we are slaves today slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and other good things because of our sins its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us they rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please we are in great distress as they outline what do you deserve God and what do we deserve they say you deserve worship and adoration and praise because you are our God you are great and mighty and awesome you're the covenant keeper the loyal lover the righteous in judgment you're faithful even when we're faithless but we We have gotten what we deserve condemnation and judgment. We haven't kept your laws or your warnings. We, When you blessed us, we scorned you. When, when we were given wealth and, and prosperity, we chose poverty. We have gotten what we deserve, and we are now slaves. And instead of enjoying the land, we're slaves in the land. Instead of relishing in the yield of the land, we give that yield to other kings. Instead of being free, we have our lives determined by other people. Instead of having plenty and having freedom. We have distress. Clearly, this is a group of people who have had an encounter with God. But they know, just in rehearsing their failures, that an encounter with God fades from your mind. And an encounter with God, even having the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in their presence for 40 years, it was like they became blind to it, and they were willing to create an idol right in the middle of camp. This week I I had, I have no other way to explain it, but I had an encounter with God. and it was so strong, it shook me for a couple of days. Um, last Sunday, we had had a time of prayer for our, our friend Dave and Jill uh, Ferguson's uh, son, Zion. Um, Zion was in renal failure. And, um, and so pastors from all over the country dialed into a Zoom call like this, and uh, we prayed for Zion. And, and um, as we prayed, I felt the Spirit speaking James 1 into my heart. Um, ask in faith, no doubting. Uh, the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed let not man let, let not that man think he will receive anything from the Lord because he is a double minded man and unstable in all his ways, and so I obeyed and I asked without wavering. I asked without doubt, I believed that God was going to to heal Zion and um, and Dave was praying the same way, and I could sense his frustration because there were some pastors that were on the line that um, that is not how they were praying. It was kind of the uh, what, what Dave and I jokingly call the cowardly passive tense. Um, uh, they were saying, well, Lord, you know, like, we don't know what you want to do, but whatever you want to do, let your will be done. It was just, it, it, it was it, like saying, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and actually pray in faith that, that this boy will be healed. Um, and, um, and so that was on Sunday, by Tuesday, I, I mean, I was burdened, uh, early in this week to pray for that family. And so was Tanya. Um, uh, Tuesday night, um, I was praying as I was driving back from the office in Santa Monica and I had to confess, Lord, I've got some doubts about how it is that you work and why in the world you ask elders of the church to pray. Um, and, and whether my prayer even matters, um, uh, because if you're in control of all things, then, then why does my prayer even matter? And so I, I, uh, ask God. I, I just said, um, "Who am I that you would answer me?" And and if you're in control of all things, then why should I even ask? Um, and and it was like um, it was like a thunderclap in my brain. Psalm two that Rex has quoted, I don't know, dozens of times over the last several years, came crashing in my brain. Ask of me. And I will give even the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And I had to pull over. And I I had an encounter with God that gave me absolute certainty that if God would give the nations, and God would give the ends of the earth, that God would give David and Jill their son. So I sent David a text. I said, look, Dave, we are not super charismatic guys. Um, uh, we are much more, uh, believing in the object word, objective word of God than the, uh, subjective experience. But I believe that God is going to heal your son and I believe that he is not going to take it from you. Um, so later that week, um, uh, Dave and Jill went, and they saw the doctor with with Zion, and they said, "Hey, we have the results of of Zion's bi- biopsy." And uh, we want you to know that uh, what we thought was that um, before Christmas, he was going to end up on a transplant list. But what we have come to understand is that what's going on in his kidneys is a sudden onset thing. And it is um, triggered by uh, his body has formed an allergic reaction to Motrin and to antacids. And uh, this sudden thing that has come on, if he will take steroids, and he will drink lots of water, and he will exercise. Um, It it should improve. And the the doctor said something that was uh, just, it kind of struck me, because this is not what doctors normally say. And he looked at Zion, and he said, Zion, this pill that you're going to take is not a magic pill. It will not cure you. You need to pray every day. That God will heal you, because ultimately these things can help, but God heals, and so God needs to heal you and uh, and and so he is on the road to recovery, and they think that over the next two months he will make a full recovery um, if these things work and and I had this amazing experience on Tuesday, right, and it rattled me, and it it sobered me um, and and yet. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and my days were so full with meetings and with to-do lists and the noise of emails and, and these projects that are filling up. I had one day where I had like over 350 emails and it was just, it, it began to push all of it from my mind so that by the time the weekend came, this encounter I had, had with God was, was almost a distant memory. That is why it's harder to finish than it is to start because no matter how strong that that encounter is people people begin to lose sight of it over time Bill Hybels years ago wrote a book called Courageous Leadership," and he he said it this way: Vision leaks. Um, when 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 we have a, a, a vision of who God is or what He's calling us to do, it, it kind of leaks out, and so it's harder to finish than it is to start. And so Nehemiah and Ezra they want to fix this experience in people's minds. They want them to understand that 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 this. Thing that they've come to of understanding who God is and looking at who they've been and committing themselves is something that they needed to hold on to. And so it says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement and we're putting in it in writing. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then it goes on to to talk about uh, who it was that was to seal it, and it, it was Nehemiah the governor, and then it was all of the priests, and then it was the Levites. And then it was the leaders of the people and, and the rest of the people and the priests, and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the musicians and the temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. And so they are going to come together and they are going to make an agreement and they want are going to fix it in their mind. Why do that? Why, why come and make this agreement? When I was, uh, Growing up, we spent our summers with my grandparents on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, and every day we went to the beach, and every morning we would go at the same time it was 15 minutes before the lifeguards went on duty because we loved going down and, and we would help the lifeguards drag their bench into place. And then we would take two red flags and we would jam them into the sand and we'd wiggle them around until they were deep. And then we'd pile the sand up around them so that they wouldn't move. And so there was a red flag on one end and a red flag on the other end. And and the lifeguards stand in the middle and and they would plant those flags and then, The lifeguards would take their seat, and we would go swim. Well, there were some days that that the the currents were strong, and we would start off in the middle, right in front of the lifeguard stand, and before too long, we hear a whistle. And and we have gone out past where the red flag is, and they're calling us back to inside the red flags, and we think, how did we get here? We weren't moving this direction, but the water was just pulling us. And so we'd come out of the water and we'd run down to the other red flag and we get in the water and before too long, we look up and we're already past the red flag. And so what Nehemiah is doing is he's saying, look, we are going to plant flags in the sand. And we are going to give a marker that you can look at. And we are going to be reminded that this is the thing that we're committed to. And so um, uh, if, I mean, the amazing thing is, if you look back at things that that people go, wow, there were some amazing movements of God, like the great awakening, the great awakening, we, we tend to attribute and we go, wow, there were some really godly guys who the spirit filled in such a way that when they preached, People just came to faith and the church grew. But the, the funny thing is, is that when you go back and you look at the Great Awakening, so much of the Great Awakening, its sticking power was not about the one-time event where somebody was preaching. The sticking power came from the red flags that they stuck in the ground. Jonathan Edwards um, declared a day of fasting and prayer, and, and then they signed a covenant together. Um, and, and in their covenant, they, they agreed not to defraud, to make restitution to renounce backbiting and revenge and grudges. Particularly in public affairs, they agreed to give up their vigorous political party spirit to avoid unchristian in vain reproaches, bitter judgments, and ridicule. John Wesley had the Methodist churches make a covenant every New Year's Day that included a prayer, and the prayer said, I am no longer my own, but I am thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal and the covenant, which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. And so the Nehemiah is, is bringing the people together and he is planting stakes in the ground, red flags that say, we are always going to choose to obey God. And, and, and they do what, what, um uh, this passage says that they they made a covenant. Uh, the word covenant is actually not in the passage, but but it's it's translated that way because of the word the verb that comes before it. It says that they cut a firm promise. And that is um, the idea of cutting a promise. They use the word covenant because they go, oh, well, that's clearly what they're using. And it's referring back to Genesis 15. I told you, God made a covenant with Abram. And and when he said he was going to make a covenant with Abram, he said, Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get a cow. And I want you to get a goat. And I want you to get two birds. And I want you to come and I want you to cut the cow in half, and I want you to cut the goat in half, and I want you to put the birds on either side, and there's going to be a pathway. And this was a, a common way for a very serious covenant to be made during that time. And, and the two parties were to walk through the middle and say, let it be to, like this to me if I break this covenant. And so all day long, Abram is waiting for God to show up. And all day long, he's chasing off the birds that are coming to, to like, try to feast on the, the flesh of these animals that's there. And he's chasing off predators. And so the evening comes, and Abram thinks this is it. God is showing up. And when God shows up, the two of us are going to walk through this. But God does something different. And God puts Abram to sleep and God walks through on his own and says, this covenant is unconditional. This covenant doesn't rely on your works. This covenant is all about what I do and, and I will be destroyed before I break this covenant. And I will make you a land, and I will ge- or a seed, and I will give you a land, and I will give you a blessing, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And he makes a covenant with Abram that doesn't depend on Abram at all. And so, so it says that they cut, they they made a covenant, and it's the I, the same kind of seriousness that they said this is a, a covenant that comes with a curse on us if we break it. And so uh, it says that all these join their fellow Israelites, nobles, and they bind themselves with a curse and an oath, to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands and the regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. And so as they go to make this promise, they're, really they're going to make a promise about three things. They're going to make a promise about uh, their relationships. They're going to make a promise about their finances, and they're going to make a promise about the house of God. So it's relational, financial and ecclesiastical. Um, and so as they are, are making this, these promises, this is what they say. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters for our sons. Wait, what? Is this like some sort of racist thing? What, what are they saying? Like, we are not going to marry anyone who's not part of our nation. And, and it's easy to look at that and go, what is that about? And and this is not about racism. This is uh, about um, uh, holiness of the nation. Um, to, to many, this idea seemed like a ridiculous idea. And, and in fact, you, you can kind of see it play out through the Old Testament, because over and over again, the people did not do this thing. And, and we are not different, right? Like our Christian kids um, will say, I don't understand. We love each other. We grew up together. We like the same movies and music. We have the same friends. What's the big deal? And they understand that this is the whole deal because they understand that this is not about race. This is not about whether somebody's a nice person. This is about. Holiness, And this is about God setting aside his people and not allowing to have sin and to have idolatry come back into the nation. And so here's the, the thing you have to remember. There was a way for people who were outside the covenant to come into the covenant. There was a process and and it involved um, a meal and ceremonial washing for men. It involved circumcision. There were all these steps, seven different things that they would do if they wanted to be part of the covenant. And once they were part of the covenant people, then this was not for them. You don't have to worry about not intermarrying with covenant people. It doesn't matter their nationality. It doesn't matter their race. What matters is that they're in the covenant. And so they say, look, we promise not to do this because we want purity in our religion and in in our relationships. And so relationally, we will choose God. And then they say, financially, we will choose God. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy for them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And every seventh year we'll forego working in the land and we'll cancel all the debts. You know, all right, so they're they're not working on Sabbath. Um, more to the point, they're not allowing other people to come sell on the Sabbath, which is is kind of a, a step beyond. There's, it, for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness and, and they had to trust God on that one day a week. And they they would have to store up the day before, and then they would have to not gather anything on the day of Sabbath. And so they never knew. I mean, that manna showed up every morning, but it didn't show up on the Sabbath. And so for 40 years, they were trained. And by the end, they thought, you know what, we can trust God with one day a week. But man, that that's all we can do, right? It, even that was hard. Everybody else, Sabbath was a work day. And so the, the people from the surrounding areas, you know, maybe that was the only day the Moabites sold eggs and they would have to say, we're not going to buy from them. We're, we're, we're not going to, when they come in, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day and every seven year, seventh year, we're going to forego working the land. You know, wait a minute. I mean, imagine going to your boss and saying, Hey boss, um, It's been seven years. I've had a really great run here. And um, uh, I'm going to trust God for provision for me. And I hope that my job's here when I come back in a year. Your boss will be like, I I don't think so. We're going to have to fill that position. You're not just coming back in a year. Imagine in an agrarian society. You're just choosing not to plant and you're going to you're going to believe that God's going to take care of everything for a year? This had never been done up to this point. And so they're they're saying we're going to do this and we're going to cancel all the debts at the end of that 7-year period. And they said we also then will assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. So they've said, we are going to covenant together relationally. We're going to cover covenant together financially. Now we're going to covenant together ecclesiastically. Like we are, are going to talk about the corporate worship in the house of God and that we won't neglect the house of God and so they say, um, we are going to take care of carrying out these commandments for the bread set out on the table for the regular grain offerings, for the burn offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath the new moon feast and the appointed festivals they're saying, look, all these things um, we give our tithe but but there's all this extra expense, there's things that that need to happen and there, there is no treasury that's built up for, for the, the temple and so we need to provide in advance so that there's all this money for, for all of these things, all these um, feasts and holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make an atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, We've cast lots to determine when each of our family is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. So the priests are working, and the priests are starting to cast lots. And what's interesting, they, they're casting lots, but the last time they said they were going to cast lots, they were talking about the lineage of people. And, and so that must have already happened. And so they know who's in and who's out and who can come to the temple and who can't. And they said, "We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree, as it is written in the law. We will bring the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, of our herd, of our flocks to the house of God, to the priest ministering there. They, for their children, they would redeem them. They would buy them back. They they would offer them to the Lord, and then they would offer an offering to redeem their child back. Um, but they were to bring of their first and their best. And and uh, this is what we teach the kids as we." as we are teaching them to give, right? Give of your first and best, save for the future, live on the rest. Always start with God, always start with bringing to him our first and best. And 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 that's the principle of tithe. Now, the idea behind tithe of, of 10%, you have to remember, God gave a group of unbelieving people, people who were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, training wheels and said, look, just start with 10%. By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, if you have two cloaks, and somebody has need, give them one. That's 50%. Something's changed there, right? And it's it's that we have become accustomed to giving of our first and best to the point where, yes, it's logical. If I have something, I give it away. I, I It's generosity for the sake of our God, who has been unbelievably generous to us. And so it says... Um, uh, We'll we'll bring the firstborn and and our first fruits, and moreover, we'll bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, the fruit of all of our trees, our new wine and olive oil. We'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the minister, uh, ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. And so they make this covenant. They, they drive red flags into the sand, and they say, "We," be, and, and why do they do it? They, they, do they do it because it is uh, an act of legalism do they do it because they think this way god will have favor on me this way god will be pleased with me it it is not that and and it, our tendency is to read nehemiah chapter 10 and run to galatians and go oh i'm free i am free i don't have to do this but you have to understand that that this that they are doing is not about them being legalistic. This is people who have understood who God is that he is great and awesome, that he is glorious, that he is the redeemer, he is the savior, he is the rescuer, he is the rest giver, he is the promise keeper. And they have responded to him in joy because in joy they have understood that he has pursued them and he has loved them and he has poured out his grace on them. And as he has poured out his grace on them, they have rejected him and he has still not rejected them. They have acted faithlessly and he has, 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 acted faithfully they they have acted wickedly and he has acted righteously and lovingly and he has pursued them and and when they finally understand who he is in light of who they are and they say i don't deserve any of that and yet god has poured it all out on me then the natural response of the heart is to say man i want to I want to do something for him. I want to respond in love and adoration to him. I want to respond in a way that pleases him. And so this is them saying, I'm going to put these stakes in the sand. I am going to, I am going to mark this and say, I will always follow him, not out of legalism, but out of joy and out of thankfulness. And so, so they, they are, are making this, this declaration, and they're saying, relationally, we will follow God financially, even, I mean, this is to take a year off, to cancel all the debts. I mean, this is uh, taking uh, Job's words to a a new level. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Like, though I starve to death and all my kids, I will trust him. That's what they're saying. And and then ecclesiastically, and they spend so much time kind of hitting on that, that that we're going to bring our tithes, we're going to bring our offerings, and we are going to bring an attitude that that no matter what, we won't neglect God's house. Why do you think um, they would come with a public covenant of imperatives? It's because it's easier to start than it is to finish, right? Again, vision leaks. No matter what God has done for you or around you, you have the potential to drift back to the thing that God saved you from some i've heard people say like oh no i've been saved from way too much to ever drift or my theology's solid and and because my theology's solid i'll never drift but i got to be honest with you i have never met someone who drifted because of the theology i mean the only guy i ever know that like really left anything because of his theology was rob bell and i never knew him personally um, but but typically what you see is people drift because of sloppy living it's not about orthodoxy it's about orthopraxy orthodoxy is right belief orthopraxy is putting that right belief into action and 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 it is not our orthodoxy that endangers us it is our orthopraxy relationally how many times have you heard well I met this girl or I, I started hanging out with these guys after work or financially i Countless times. Well, we bought a house, we bought a car, we bought a boat, we bought a vacation house. I took this job, um, and it, it was easier to tithe back when I made thirty thousand, but now that I make ninety thousand, and and there's there's all of these things that have nothing to do with what you believe. It has everything to do with how you live, ecclesiastically. I mean. We don't have time to attend church. We don't have time to serve. We don't have time to live in, in community. My kids have games on Sundays. Um, I work too many hours. I'm under a lot of you know, pressure at work, and, and I can't take anything more on. Um, Sundays are the only day to visit family or, or to play or to relax, and, and we have a whole list of things. What do we believe about Sunday versus what do we do on Sunday? Th- think of the religious leaders that you have known that have fallen. Were their falls theological? No, most likely they were relational or they were financial, right? God wants us to see him clearly. God wants us to understand the depth of our depravity and our need for atonement. And once we see it, to see the never ending, always pursuing way that he pursues and chases after us in his loyal love. And and when we See that when we get to the point where we understand just how great he is and we understand just how fallen we are. And we understand that in spite of that, he continues to pour out his love on us. He wants us to get to a point where we go, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way not to stray relationally. I am going to figure out a way to put a stake in the ground and not stray financially. I am going to figure out how to mark a red flag and not stray ecclesiastically. I am not going to neglect God's house. I'm not going to neglect God's people. I'm not going to neglect God's way with my finances. I'm not going to neglect God's way with raising my family, with living interpersonally, of doing my job. I am going to put a stake in the sand, and I am, I am going to figure out a way to do that. I remember when Jason and Joel were uh, doing karate training. Um, They had won all kinds of local and regional uh, karate uh, uh, matches, and they were being pressured at eight years old um, uh, to train for a national competition. But the catch was that the training for that national competition happened every Sunday morning. And, and I remember adults saying to them, like, no, you need to come on Sunday. If you're going to be a national champion, you need to come on Sunday morning. And, and they would say, oh, well, you know, we meet with our church. And, and they were like, well, skip church or, or find a different church or find a church that meets at night. Or they had all these different ideas. And I remember one of, one of the boys saying, oh, I, I think you misunderstand. You, you think of church as an event that we can skip. But we're Christians. And the church is not where we go. The church is who we are. And they drove a stake in the sand and said, this is who we are. What is the flag that God is asking you to plant relationally? What is the flag that God is asking you to plant financially? What is the flag that God is asking you to plant ecclesiastically? We have a great, awesome, covenant-keeping, loyal, righteous God who has been faithful to us, in spite of our rebellion. And we have run back to our slavery, and he has continued to pour out his grace. And in joy we want to respond. But we know that it's easier to start than it is to finish. And let's just start figuring out, like, where am I going to plant a flag? John Calvin created a family motto, and his motto hung in his home, my heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Jack Whartzen, who worked with teenagers, We'd hand them a sticker to put in their Bible that said, all that I am, all that I have, all that I ever hoped to be, I now and forever give to my Lord Jesus Christ. Robert Lewis had rings made for his children that said, reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect God's greater reward. What is the flag that God is asking you to plant? What will your flag on the sand be? Our Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a good God, that you are a loving God, that you are a compassionate God and a merciful God, a God who pursues us over and over when we choose slavery and we choose self-destruction and we choose sin and we choose to walk away from the joy that's in your presence. You pursue us and you love us and you call us back and you allow things to happen, not to pay us back, but to bring us back. And so, Lord, we look at your loyal love, and we look at your grace, and we are amazed. And we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died in our place, that he rose as our Savior, that he lives as our King, he intercedes as our priest. And one day he will come back to rescue us and to completely redeem all of mankind. And we are overwhelmed by the grace that you have poured out on us who have rejected you, who have lived as enemies. And so, Lord, we look for ways to say, I want to always follow you. I want to always follow you relationally. I want to always follow you financially. I want to always follow you ecclesiastically. Lord, I pray that you will put it in our hearts, flags that we can plant deep, that we can look at so when the, the, the things of life begin to pull us in the current away from those things, that we will see that marker and we will always run back to you. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James.